Welcome to State of the State, the monthly roundup of politics and economic news brought to you by the Institute for Public Policy and Social Research at Michigan State University and our friends here at WKAR Studio. I'm Arnold Weinfeld, Associate Director at the Institute, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Dr. Matt Grossman, Director at IPSER, and MSU Economist Emeritus now? Is that... Uh, emeritus, emeritus, yes. MSU Economist Emeritus Charlie Ballard. So, gentlemen, since the last time we met, uh, we've had an election, and uh, I think there was a lot of surprise uh, all the way around, not just uh, here in Michigan, where we've had a change of power in the House, in the state House and the state Senate, but across the country, where a uh, a suspected, quote, red wave in Congress turned out to be something of a trickle, uh, although Republicans have taken control of the Congress. But Democrats have uh, retained control of the Senate and might have outright control of the Senate after the Georgia runoff election. Matt, what did you see out there? Well, I, I wouldn't necessarily agree that it was a, a trickle overall. Uh, the National House popular vote moved from about three percentage points in favor of Democrats to about three percentage points in favor of Republicans, which is a little less than normal for a midterm uh, election of a new uh, president. But the Republican gains were not concentrated in places where they mattered uh, for the outcome. So the seat share gain was a lot less uh, than uh, normal in the U.S. House. They mainly gained in districts that they were already winning uh, by significant margin. And there were big state differences. Uh, New York and Florida, for example, moved quite a bit uh, to the right. And states like Michigan and Colorado bucked the trend entirely uh, and moved uh, to uh, the left instead. And in our elections, we had the governor win by 10 and a half points uh, statewide. Uh, and the other statewide uh, races also almost uncompetitive, uh, which uh, was uh, not necessarily what we were expecting. Of course, the uh, House and the Senate at the state level also moved uh, to Democratic control. But there again, there's a little bit of an illusion caused by the redistricting process in the middle, which is that uh, statewide House and Senate candidates uh, in the Democratic Party uh, won by about one and a half percent across all uh, races. Almost every uh, House and Senate uh, Democrat underperformed Whitmer uh, compared uh, to their own candidacy in their own district. Or another way of, of saying that is every Republican overperformed Tudor Dixon in their House and Senate uh, uh, races. But uh, that statewide margin is about the same uh, as it was uh, in previous elections. It's just that under the new maps, that meant a, a new majority. It meant a majority that matched the statewide vote, uh, and that gave control to the Democrats. Uh, so a sea change in, in Lansing. Uh, and uh, less than normal change uh, nationally in the midterm election. Matt, we, uh, Ipser and yourself, along with uh, other folks down at the Ford School at U of M, helped to support the efforts to rewrite the maps. What was the impact of those maps? It was quite significant. It was necessary but insufficient for uh, Democrats uh, to win control of the legislature. Under the old maps, they would not have won uh, control uh, of either uh, chamber. Uh, but they still had to win the statewide uh, vote, uh, and that was not at all clear that that was going to happen before the election. So 
uh, the the maps did not uh, make the Democrats one, but the, when but they made uh, the statewide vote consistent with uh, the chamber margins, uh, and that was not something that was easy to do. It's much easier to uh, gerrymander in favor of Republicans than to gerrymander in favor of Democrats, and making an even map in Michigan uh, requires uh, pretty precisely allowing uh, for the creation of competitive or Democratic districts. Uh, in in different parts of the state, like the Lakeshore District. I mean, we now have a Democratic state representative from uh, far west Michigan. I guess you could say right along the Lakeshore. I mean that that that's one of those districts you're talking about. Is that right? Right, and that district on a map looks gerrymandered in the sense that uh, they went out of their way to collect Democrats along the Lakeshore and not collect too many. Uh, people further inland uh, in order to make that district uh, competitive or slightly Democratic uh, leaning. But from the perspective of the state as a whole, you have to do that to enable the statewide vote uh, to be uh, consistent with the margins in the legislature uh, because Democrats are much more concentrated geographically in Michigan than Republicans. Yeah, and that was really the I think the toughest part, the catch-22 of that process, you know, is that how, how do you do that? I think the 35th State Senate District that runs from all the way from Bay City to Midland and includes Saginaw is another one of those districts that, that flipped, um, but is another one of those that kind of looks kind of odd in order to, to accomplish what, what the goals were. So those are the maps. Now let's turn to the issues that were in front of voters. Um, you know, the uh, up until about mid-October, uh, Democratic hopes were, were pretty high across the country. And then all of a sudden, it seemed as if the discussion turned to the economy, gas prices, inflation. Um, and uh, the last two weeks, I know when talking to some de- Democratic polls, they were, they were not confident of much, uh, except maybe here in Michigan, the governor's race, of course, and, and, and the secretary of state. But even the attorney general's race was supposedly uh, uh, pretty close, and, and that, that did not turn out that way. So what, what was it here at the end of the day, nationally or in Michigan? You know, abortion seemed to be a top issue here in Michigan for sure. That ballot proposal, one with, you know, upper 50s. Um, how did the, what, what were the issues here in Michigan and nationally, and how did they play a role? Well, certainly abortion is the top candidate uh, for why uh, Michigan performed differently than other states. We had an abortion uh, proposition on the ballot. It was competitive. There was uh, spending on it. Uh, It brought out voters who might not normally vote in a a midterm election. So it made our turnout actually go up. uh, And uh, that uh, could have made a difference for why uh, Michigan uh, trended a little bit more uh, to the Democratic side than the national electorate. The other potential candidate is Whitmer's uh, incumbency uh, advantage. It seemed to be bigger uh, than people were uh, expecting. And, you know, if she had any coattails at all, uh, it might have brought, brought across the line uh, that final 1% uh, that uh, Democrats needed to gain control of the legislature. And, and Charlie, what about the economy? I mean, certainly that we kept hearing the last last month, it's the economy, stupid. You know, I mean, how did that play a role or not play a role? Well, the economy was certainly uh, Republicans uh, aimed at that issue in their in their uh, campaign. Um, and it's true that the economy is not in fabulous shape. Uh, but I think a couple of things. Uh, w- one is, uh, as Matt said, w- wherever abortion was on the ballot. 
uh, Democrats did well. One of the reasons why Democrats did poorly in, in New York state was that abortion is safe there. It wasn't on the ballot. And so you got uh, it, there wasn't that that groundswell uh, affecting the vote. Um, but the economy is um, it's not as bad as uh, some people portray it. Uh, you know, when you have unemployment below below four percent, when you have even though GDP has grown slowly, um, officially it, it shrank in the first two quarters of this year, but that was really due to quirks of uh, inventory swings and swings in net exports. The, the, the fundamentals of gross domestic product, consumer spending, investment, those have continued to grow. Now, uh, 2021 was a gangbusters growth year, uh, uh, largely a rebound from the COVID recession. You, you can't maintain that year after year. So 2022, we knew was not going to be a fabulous year. And then because of inflation, the Federal Reserve has has pushed on the brakes. Um, and so the economy is not in a great shape. But are we in a recession? No, we are definitely not in a recession. Could we be in a recession six months from now? Maybe. Um, I think it's uh, a little, I think avoiding a recession is a little bit less than 50-50, but it's, it's not zero. Um, uh, the Princeton economist Alan Blinder has a new book out, and he was the vice chair of the Fed in the 90s. And he's pointed out that in the last 60 years, about half the time when the Federal Reserve is tightening things up, we avoid a recession, or at least we avoid a hard recession. Um, So there's three outcomes. There's no recession, soft landing, there's soft-ish landing like 2001, which was a recession that was so mild that you, you, if you squint, you couldn't see it in the data. And then there's hard landing, which would be um, 1982 recession or the one, uh, the Great Recession of 14 years ago. I think the most likely is either soft or soft-ish, mm-hmm. and that's good news. Nobody, of course... Who knows, with China, with North Korea, with Ukraine, with all of the weirdness in the world, there are things that we can't predict. Uh, But on the basis of the things that we can predict, most economists are saying, yeah, there will be, you know, unemployment might rise into the fours or the low fives. That's not catastrophic. That's not a great recession, and and so that's what I'm hoping for. Yeah, so so the two points you bring up there is a consumer spending continues, right, and low unemployment. So people are working, and someone's making money somewhere. Someone's and making that, money, and somewhere. that continues to drive drive the economy. But I, I think uh, it, you know, the the issue over the rail strike that's that's with us right now. Um, it's pretty clear that even the Democrats in Congress are going to make sure that at least. You mentioned Ukraine, you mentioned China and everything. At least try and make sure that at least as many systems as possible are working like they should be here in the United States to avert uh, inflation. Uh, Because a a rail strike would cause major disruption, which would mean that a lot of things that you used to be able to find on the shelf, you'll have trouble finding at all. Or if you can find it, its price will be be higher. And, And, of course, the thing that we always need to say about inflation uh, or lots of other economic phenomena, is, you know, if you're making a quarter of a million a year, if, if, you're, uh, if you're affluent, uh, yeah, it's chump change. 
it's irritating, but you you don't you don't have a, a choice between do I make rent or put food on the table mm-hmm. for our for the the lower part of our of our household income distribution. Inflation is is really really a problem, and we need to keep that in mind. It's it's not something that affects everybody equally. Right, great point, Matt. Nationally, um, it seems that Republicans somewhat took a beating. Uh, many of the candidates that uh, Donald Trump endorsed did not win office. Um, uh, in Arizona, for instance, uh, Carrie Lake looks like she lost that that governor's race. What what do you make of the national picture? Is it still the case that um, all politics is still national now? Well, certainly the national swings were more consistent with the the normal uh, national uh, uh, picture in a midterm election than these important uh, Senate elections where voters knew the candidates uh, and uh, selected more on that basis. That's always true to some extent. Uh, Split ticket voting was actually down in this election slightly. So the voters' ability to kind of select between the candidates is, is still a small proportion of total races. But it was enough to swing a lot of these major races. And Donald Trump is a prime suspect in why uh, that is is happening. He His endorsed candidates performed about six points worse in House elections, uh, not to mention the Senate elections, uh, where he endorsed uh, candidates with less experience uh, than uh, all their alternatives that were available, candidates that were perceived as more extreme than other candidates that were available. And it made the election more less of a referendum on Biden uh, with his low approval and more of a choice between Biden preferred and Trump preferred candidates. Uh, and that does seem to have made a difference uh, in several of these major Senate elections. You can tell that because governor elections were on the same ballots in some cases. Uh, and, for example, uh, in, in Georgia, there was no problem in the governor election where Brian Kemp uh, distanced himself uh, f- uh, from Trump. Uh, and we're still fighting out another uh, runoff in the Senate election uh, where we got Herschel Walker on the Republican mm-hmm. side because of Donald Trump. Uh, we were, you know, we did a forum, uh, Ipser does monthly public policy forums, and obviously the one we did uh, a few weeks ago was on the election. And you started by, you started it off by making a comment, I think it was, uh, welcome to the first day of the 2024 uh, election cycle. What do you see moving forward? Well, yeah, everybody got a week off, and then Donald <laughs> Trump and da- and do- <laughs> announced his candidacy uh, for the next election cycle. So so we always say that the, the campaign starts right after the last one, but this time Trump made sure uh, that, that that was the case. It still is odd. I mean, this is the time when everybody is tired of hearing about politics. You do not think that this is like the way to get a lot of, you know, positive media attention for a new candidacy. But they barely held him off from announcing before the election. He almost announced two days before the election, and he announced that he was going to announce. So this was the last possible time. He announced that he was going to announce that he was going to announce (laughs) that he was going to announce. Exactly. So they barely held him off, and uh, he decided to announce that not a great time for running a presidential uh, campaign. But he's in there. We knew he was going to be, uh, and it's going to be a long cycle. One of the best things that I take from this election is that, with a with a few exceptions, Carrie Lake I think is the most uh, notable. People who lost elections admitted that they lost. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and they accepted defeat. That is something that I think is absolutely crucial for a well-functioning democracy, and it's something that we saw greatly deteriorate uh, a couple of years ago, and I I hope that that makes a a big-time comeback. I do expect that if Donald Trump is the Republican nominee for president in 2024, that he will uh, either win or say that he won. I don't expect that he will ever say that he lost. But... I'm I'm glad that a lot of people. Tim Ryan's uh, accession uh, uh, speech in um, uh, in Ohio was admirable. He said, "Look, you know, we had a fair fight. I lost, and 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 that's the way it should be in a democracy." And yeah. we also saw fewer yeah. problems with certification. Yes, we we saw fewer problems mm-hmm. with uh, election day. Um, uh, voter intimidation. So a lot of um, things that we were potentially worried about um, uh, t- turned out to be better uh, than than expected. Yeah. Um, but that's another case where the Trump effect is probably pretty clear. Without him being out there saying, let's not certify, let's not do this, we have uh, fewer of those problems, but that doesn't mean that they won't return. Yeah. And, you know, one of the candidates who still hasn't conceded is the uh, Michigan Republican Secretary of State, candidate caramel so um it it seems to me in general when that occurs the public says you lost go away you know i mean the public recognizes there's no big stink that you know oh yeah this person won't concede there's a problem here except we see that in arizona which was a very tight race yes um so 2024 let's go there for uh, a, a moment um clearly the governor of florida ron desantis had uh, what I would call an overwhelming victory uh, against uh, the former governor, uh, Charlie Crist, and uh, seems to have positioned himself fairly well for moving uh, forward with a run at at, at the Republican nomination for president against Donald Trump. Uh, Mike Pence, the former vice president, has been quite active publicly um, and tries to be distancing himself. But in terms of strong candidates, to challenge Donald Trump as standard bearer of the party. Um, who do we see other than Ron DeSantis? Well, it's it's going to be important uh, for uh, Republicans who do, don't want Donald Trump to be the nominee to consolidate behind an alternative. They don't have to do that now. Uh, there's a long time uh, to go. Um, but, you know, you, you don't need a whole lot. Uh, you just you just need uh, one. Uh, Ron DeSantis won by about the same margin as Marco Rubio. Uh, There were other uh, candidates that outperformed their state fundamentals by more. So I don't know that it was sort of super impressive, but it was impressive enough, certainly compared to Trump's performance uh, in uh, the election, which was to endorse people in a lot of winnable seats who lost. So uh, for Republicans looking for electability, uh, Ron DeSantis certainly looks uh, much better uh, right now. Historically, that has not been enough to win Republican primaries. You cannot just say uh, this candidate is unelectable. I'm I'm the more electable one. You have to say uh, I'm better at representing conservative values. I have uh, something that this other alternative candidate uh, doesn't have. Uh, and so it'll be interesting to see if electability is enough. But there's a lot of evidence now. Donald Trump underperformed the House Republican vote in 2016. He underperformed the House Republican vote in 2020. He suffered a bigger than normal loss in the 2018 midterm election. And his endorsed candidates did worse than his non-endorsed candidates in the last three cycles. So uh, 
that's a lot of evidence that his electability argument is not so strong. In the last couple of weeks, uh, Donald Trump has embraced uh, white nationalists uh, mm-hmm. more, uh, white supremacists more fervently than before. And he's uh, also uh, cozied up with uh, a- anti-Semitic uh, folks in ways that he hadn't done before. And, uh, you know, press reports indicate that there are a lot of Republicans who are upset by that. Do you think that that will make uh, much of a difference? Or has he already uh, gone so far to the right that, that this is, is not going to do anything? There definitely are indications that his support is uh, lessening and that there were not people who were on board before ready to jump in with him at this point. And that's true in funders. It's true in endorsements um, like the evangelical community, for example. Um, But I hesitate to say another media hubbub is going to sink Donald Trump when we have seen (laughs) so many uh, and so many with, with good background information that should lead people to change their opinions of Donald Trump, but haven't so far. So, yes, there are signs, but I think not because of the latest. We'll we'll see. Well, and we can't get away uh, with just talking about uh, Mr. Trump. Certainly, there is, uh, I would say, a fairly strong undercurrent in the Democratic Party that President Biden should not run again. Um, He will be over 80 years old uh, when he runs. Um, And, you know, there's a, a lot of people that say, you know, Joe, you did well. You stabilized the country. Um, You certainly did better than any uh, president has done in the midterm, in midterm elections. Um, Go out on top and, uh, you know, uh, the House Democratic leadership has stepped aside. Nancy Pelosi and Steny Hoyer uh, for younger blood. Um, What how do we think that conversation might play out over the next year? Doesn't seem to have convinced Joe Biden yet, uh, and he's in a stronger position than he was before the election. So I don't see it very likely that he's going to step aside unless there's a new health problem that that develops um, or or even more visible uh, deterioration uh, from from age. And again, you can't beat somebody with nobody. So (laughs) there would have to be consolidation uh, around an alternative and the same people who don't want Joe Biden to be the nominee, don't necessarily want Kamala Harris to be the nominee, who would be the most likely alternative. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, we might wish for different, but we still might see Biden versus Trump again. My own view is that Kamala Harris has, uh, if she were the Democratic nominee in 2024, she would uh, not be as strong a candidate as Joe Biden, unless Joe Biden has some health deterioration. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what about our own governor, Governor Whitmer? Um, you know, double-digit win. Um, she uh, had been mentioned even before this election on the national scene. Um, do we think that she'll play a bigger role in national politics moving forward? So she was vetted for the vice presidency. Um, she was already um, in the mix. Uh, it, it's Again, it's dependent on kind of what the dynamics of how long she has to wait. Um, but certainly a Midwest governor winning by a, a small, a large amount who already had some national profile is going uh, to continue to to be mentioned uh, regularly uh, and and has has an argument. Michigan is also uh, now more likely to move up in the Democratic primary process. Um, the, the Democrats are trying to do that officially. For next time, uh, and it it looks like we're getting uh, the most attention for moving up into those uh, top four uh, traditional first four primary states. So, 
Uh, and of course, that's, that has a long history as well. We've been trying to move up, but we have a better argument now, and it looks like it, it really could happen. And Charlie, looking forward to 2023, you mentioned that your view is we'll see a soft or softish landing. Um, Michigan still continuing to compete for uh, chip plants. The uh, the president, as a matter of fact, was in the Saginaw area, Saginaw Bay City area just this past week uh, visiting a, a chip manufacturer. Um, we've got uh, 10 cranes I counted the other day on the west side of this community over in Delta Township uh, building a new battery plant for Ultium. Um, where, how do you see Michigan's economy continuing to evolve over the next year or so? Well, I, I, I see it fairly similarly to what, we, what we've seen for, for decades now. Uh, doing okay, um, uh, but, you know, we haven't, we, we were the strongest economy in the world in the middle decades of the 20th century. And then with the decline of manufacturing in general and autos in particular, we have uh, struggled uh, for, for decades now. And um, the, uh, the Commerce Department recently brought out the state-by-state state, uh, data for 2021 for per capita personal income. And Michigan slipped uh, to 34th. Uh, which is kind of in the ballpark where we've been, but we were up, uh, we were up all the way to 32nd um, uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, uh, so it's a very mixed picture. Uh, one of the biggest reasons why we are not higher is that we remain less well-educated than the national average. And the, if, you, if you try to use statistical techniques to explain the difference in per capita personal income among the 50 states, the percentage of the population who have at least a bachelor's degree explains two-thirds of that variation. It's hugely important. And we're a couple of percentage points below the national average in bachelor's attainment. And, and then uh, uh, another picture of that is in the places where you've got highly educated populations, Ann Arbor, parts of Oakland County, um, our economy is fabulous in some of our central cities and in uh, many of our rural areas. Mm -hmm. You look at northeastern Lower Peninsula, mm -hmm. there, there, there's just not much going on. Population is declining in most counties in Michigan. Um, so um, if you're in a part of Michigan that's been doing well, every expectation is that that will continue to do well. If you're in Lake County or Misaki County or Alger County or Luce County, boy, there is just not a whole lot going on. And I wish I could snap my fingers and come up with a, uh, a way to, to, to fix that. But it's, it, these, are, these are challenges in many of our rural areas that have been going on for the better part of a century. Well, the population of the Upper Peninsula is smaller now than it was in 1910. So... Uh, that's just an indication of uh, the, that that economic growth in the United States is very uneven, very unbalanced. Right. I was going to say that's actually what what you described is reflective of what you see across the country. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Right? Michigan absolutely. is not an anomaly. We, in this. we we the story that I just told from Michigan, you could tell that story for, for just state. about every state. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Back in 1910, I think Calumet was considered for the state capital. So uh, <laughs> so there you go. The uh, the Upper Peninsula has certainly seen uh, uh, some many would say better days economically yes. and within uh, state state power structure. Um 
Matt, going into this uh, session, legislative session here in Michigan, Democrats hold a one-seat majority in the House and the Senate. Congratulations, but certainly nothing to, you know, I would say shout about that they're going to take over the world in terms of, of public policy. That's a very, very tough, having experienced that myself, that's a, a that's it's the slimmest of margins, right? And uh, But yet uh, you have, uh, I, I read a report the other day where uh, the uh, uh, at least half of uh, the Republican caucus in the House are election deniers. How do you think how do you think the dynamics going to work between Democrats that you've noted are mostly from urban suburban communities? Yes, they their districts include some rural areas. There's no doubt about that, but mostly from urban suburban communities. And Republicans that mostly represent rural areas of the state. What what kind of dynamic is that going to lead to, you think? Yeah, historically, this is a small majority, one that is, uh, you know, threatened by any small health condition uh, or, uh, uh, you know, p- potential uh, issue uh, with keeping your caucus all uh, in town and together. Um it is true that there is not your kind of Joe Manchin equivalent in uh, the Michigan House or the Senate, uh, a representative of a clearly more conservative uh, area. But there are a lot of representatives that are in swing districts um, that are going to be concerned that they might not get the same vote mm-hmm. uh, that they got uh, uh, this time uh, next time. And historically, winning uh, chamber control and winning the governor's election is associated with a decline in your uh, vote share uh, the next time. Uh, so uh, we, we expect there to be uh, at least a little bit of a uh, return in, in the other uh, direction. Some of that is dependent on how much policy actually changes and how visible it is. So if they are able to change things without people noticing too much and uh, without uh, there being a, a large uh, public uh, hubbub and a big move leftward or perceived big move leftward, um, that will help them keep their uh, majorities uh, yeah. uh, more. But we should keep in mind that the expected changes, although, you know, the first time in 40 years, um, there's a lot on the plate, but we shouldn't necessarily, and that is the time when you would expect the most policy change. Still, on average, across the states, if you look at where kind of the ideal position of the Republican Party is versus the ideal position of the Democratic Party, we expect each year of full control by one party to move the state policy about 1% in their direction yeah, on the scale of from where Democrats want it to where Republicans want state policy overall. So there'll be movement, but uh, it will not necessarily be as much as people mm-hmm. are expecting. We, mm-hmm. So you're not expecting a sea change. <laughs> um, uh, one thing that I would point out that, that m- makes a difference is, uh, okay, you've got uh, 56 to 54. Narrow majority. Um, But a lot will depend upon the behavior of individual people, including the leaders. And I I hearken back to 30 years ago when we had a 55 to 55 tie in the House of Representatives. And uh, in no small uh, part due to the uh, goodwill of Paul Hilligans, the Republican co-speaker, and Curtis Hertel Sr., the Democratic um, co-speaker, that that legislature actually got some things done. Um, and so if if you have people who are committed to working together and to listening and, and doing the hard work of legislating, uh, you can have better outcomes 
And if you don't have that, you can have worse outcomes. So we'll see what happens. Having uh, worked for a co-speaker hotel during that time, I can attest to what you say about the two personalities and how they made it work. So it certainly will be an interesting session. Uh, Matt, the one point you bring up uh, is that there were actually more competitive seats under this map uh, and tighter races. So your point about individuals and how they will react to one piece of legislation or another, depending on their own seats and their own legislative districts this time, will certainly make a big difference. Well, gentlemen, thank you so much uh, for the conversation. Insightful, as always. Um, appreciate uh, both of your perspectives and the work that you do. Uh, our thanks to WKAR Studios and, and Russ White and, and his crew for their continued to support. And to you, our listeners, uh, join us again next time on State of the State.